Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome, one and all, to episode 46 of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Ethan Castle, coming to you from South San Francisco, California. And I'm Benjamin Castle, coming to you from Cottage Grove, Oregon, about 30 minutes outside of Eugene, where my dad and I are spending a lot of time over this week plus at the World Athletics Championships. Been a lot of fun already in the two days of action we've seen. Saturday and Sunday, we drove up starting a little past midnight Saturday morning. Stopped for breakfast at a place we remembered from a decade prior in Medford that has amazing cinnamon rolls. Got to our Airbnb around 10 a.m. And mostly we've just been enjoying the championships. We'll be driving out to the coast tomorrow enjoying that. But been a lot of fun. Great new facilities over at Hayward Field in Oregon and lots of American success early on. They swept the men's hundred meters. They swept the men's shot put top two in a bunch of other events as well, including the 110 hurdles tonight. As for the Australians, they are on the medal table. They had a bronze medalist in the women's pole vault tonight, that being Sunday night. All of this meant that while you've been doing that, I've been the one extra focused on the footy, and I've gotten to see some pretty great games. This was a really interesting round. Some rounds kind of reinforce what we think. And some rounds kind of make us challenge things. You know, there's the EA sports that's in the game rounds and the EA games challenge everything rounds. And this was definitely more of an EA games round. We managed to find which channel Fox Sports 2 was on Spectrum and watch a decent amount of the Alice Springs contest live. But really the most I've watched any Australian athlete on TV this past week was Cameron Smith winning the Open Championship. And by the way, champion golfer of the year is probably the most badass official sports title out there. He also gave a perfect Australian reaction to a reporter who was asking how he was going to celebrate the win. He said he was going to figure out how many beers could fit in the Claret jug. Yeah, I saw that. I thought that was a very Australian response. And the Scots loved it. I mean, if you want to find anyone who can match Australians for drinking, you go to the British Isles. Actually, I'd say there's some on mainland Europe, whether it's the Dutch, the Germans, the Czechs. I feel like for some reason, there's a bit more care taken there in terms of, you know, not getting completely wasted. See, again, I'm challenging everything. And this round definitely challenged what we thought of the latter situation, because at the end of last round, I said that I thought the Bulldogs were completely done for that. Their loss to the Swans and just how poor they looked there sank their hopes to have any chance in September. And then all of a sudden, between a 28-point win against the Saints on Friday night and another key result, they're right back into the thick of things. They're just 3% or so out of the eight. 
One thing that this round did confirm once again was what I've thought about the Bulldogs. Remember what I've said about them? Yeah, so this game mattered to them. Yeah, they step up when it matters. They played like shit against the Lions. Clearly that game wasn't important to them. Same thing against the Swans. On the other hand, this game mattered to them. I'm not exactly sure how far you're going to take this, but it's going to be really weird if you say that a game didn't matter to them when it ended up being the game that kept them out of finals in round 23. It's possible. What I do know is all of a sudden they find themselves in a much better situation. You know, I actually slept through this game and had to go back and watch it the next day. And I regret nothing because this was not a good game. I had high expectations for this matchup. At least we thought it was kind of an elimination game. I don't think it necessarily was now that we know what we do with the rest of the round. But I think the Saints are still in deep shit, especially after they played such a bad game. You know, it's one thing if a couple players are off. It's another one. The whole team just looks disinterested. They were down 32 to two after a quarter. They were down 45 to two in the second. The lead was 52 late in the third. And they made the final score look more respectable, but no amount of numbers will justify just how lopsided this game looked. And the Saints kind of padded their stats late, which made this game look less ugly than it was. But this didn't look like a team that was playing with anything on the line. And it's really disappointing, especially with how much I've liked what the Saints have shown throughout the season, with how well they've been able to develop guys like Max King. This was just really disappointing, and it's just kind of emblematic of a club that's had a pretty lengthy history of sadness and failure. Bulldogs 13-6-84, defeating Zinkilda 7-14-56. The scoreline is important for percentage, but it, again, it no way indicates the flow of the game. It was the Bulldogs game throughout. The big concern for us going in was whether or not the Dogs were able to match up against the Saints group of Tulls. You had Ryan Gardner going on Max King, Alex Keith going on Rowan Marshall, but who was going to end up taking on Tim Membry? You couldn't move Tim English too far back because it would take him out of the passages in which he does well. Aaron Naughton was in protocols and you'd expect him to stay forward when Josh Bruce is just getting back into things after having been out of the AFL for just under a year. And yeah, Bruce had a quiet game. It ended up being Buko Kamas, surprisingly enough. This is one of the few times I've actually liked what the Bulldogs have done in one-on-one matchups. I usually have thought their only success really comes from turning things into a team-based game. You know, make it like their entire defensive unit against another team's entire forward unit. Within this game, though, they were actually able to win some one-on-ones and win those collective matchups as a whole. And again, moving Thomas back worked really well. Also a great bounce back game from Ryan Gardner after really struggling in that loss to the Swans. Bounce back gains for both of them, and also a reemergence of sorts for Jamara Yugel Hagen with his three goals, kicked the opening goals of each of the first three quarters, weirdly enough. I asked Swamp about how often that was, and maybe happens around once a season. Seems like it would have happened a bit less of that. Last time it was managed was Ben King last year in round eight, interestingly enough, against the Saints. But... You were wondering whether or not Jamara is playing better because he's getting more kicks than Aaron Naughton might otherwise get. And I can kind of see that, but Yugel Hagen often doesn't play as deep into the 50 as Naughton. So there's a clear way for them to utilize both of them. Maybe it will depend on 
Marcus Bonapelli playing a little bit further back, allowing for Hugo Hagen to have some of that space in the maybe 30 to 50 meter range. I'm not entirely sure. But having Bailey Smith back as well really completes that dog's midfield and allows Bonch to go wherever he pleases and wherever it fits best for the dog's game plan within the forward half. I think at times with Hugo Hagen, it's just been too crowded. And I think this game really put him in a role where he could thrive. And this was really the first time I thought he's looked the part of a number one overall pick. He's had good games. This was his first real breakout performance. And as for Bontempelli, this was the kind of takeover game that I expected from him and a takeover game that we should expect given the ability he has. He was great running through the middle with ball in hand, commanded possessions a lot of the time, the leading possession guy for the dogs, and play just seemed to flow effortlessly through him. Combine that with Tom Libertore's work all over the field, and you can see why the dogs were having such an easy time getting the ball further forward. Consistency has been an issue for the dogs, and it becomes all the more frustrating when you see just how high their ceiling is with a game like this. Also of note, Adam Trelor played further back again. He was mostly at halfback, and unlike against the Swans, it seemed to actually fit the entire team well. I think that also had to do with there were enough horses further forward that he was able to do that. Trelor with 25 disposals, 8 marks, 484 meters gain, did push forward and kick a goal, but clearly enjoying playing in halfback. Could very much gather that from his interview with Matthew Richardson at the end of the game. And I like his insights on how halfback has really become an attacking position while also remaining defense first. And you can really see that in some of the halfbacks in the modern game. Other stats to know for the dogs. Marcus Bonapelli leading the way, kicking 2-1 with 34 disposals, 11 marks, 8 intercepts. He gained 546 meters. Tom Libertore, 31 disposals and 11 clearances. Just double-digit clearance gains are starting to become the norm for him again. And those totals just always pop out to me on the stat sheet. Jack McRae with 31 disposals and six tackles. Bailey Dale, another 30 disposal guy, 705 meters gained. He also got a goal. Bailey Smith on his return from his pair of suspensions that cost him four games, 29 disposals and seven clearances. Such a ridiculously complete midfield. You also had Josh Dunkley with a goal, 18 disposals and eight marks there. Looking further back, Ed Richards with 22 disposals and 10 marks. He was somewhat of a roving defender back there and a good one at that. Ryan Garner with eight intercepts and Buku Kamis ending up with six. Was surprised that we kind of forgotten all this. The dogs were without Caleb Daniel once again. Saints padded their stats late, as I said, but they did have some notable lines. Specifically, Jack Sinclair had a goal, 36 disposals, 11 marks, 10 intercepts, and 639 meters gained. Callum Wilkie, 27 disposals, 16 marks, 14 intercepts, and 8 intercept marks. Could only imagine how much the Bulldogs would have scored if he hadn't been there. He was really their bright spot. Jack Steele finished with a goal, 26 disposals, and 9 tackles. Jimmy Webster, 25 disposals, 11 marks. Josh Battle, 22 disposals, 14 marks, 5 of which went for intercepts. Jack Billings, a goal behind, 21 disposals, 8 marks, and Mason Wood, a goal, 21 disposals, and 13 marks. Team stats that really jumped out to me, Bulldogs won clearances 41-21, to including 29-13 from stoppages. Also, the Bulldogs turned it over 22 more times than the Saints, and yet they still dominated, which says a lot about how often the Bulldogs had the ball and how much 
better their intensity and pressure was overall. They just looked faster in every aspect of the game. It really felt like for much of the game, the Saints were afraid to initiate contact and that they weren't willing to get into some of the contests that the Bulldogs would have otherwise had. They also had trouble connecting out of and going through the defensive 50, left their defense on the back heels a lot of the time, and it also explained some of their high stat totals out there. And it took too long for them to get to Max King multiple times as well, and that allowed defensive numbers to get around him. He still got great hands and marked a decent amount, but didn't get as many chances because he didn't get as much space. The Saints now sit at 101.7%, and that percentage is not going to cut come finals time. Even with a big win or two, it seems like winning out is the only path to September for them. 13 wins should still do it. They do not have the percentage to get through with 12. I think with Richmond's loss to North, there's an off chance it only takes 12 wins. I still think it's probably 13. But despite all that, the Saints are not dead yet. Though they did just lose Patty Ryder, which is every bit as important as losing this actual game. He's going to be out four to six weeks with a calf strain. Fortunately, the next two matchups should be favorable for them. Eagles on the road, Hawks at home, but then at Geelong, home against the Lions, home against the Swans. I don't think this is a finals team, but they've proven me wrong throughout the year. If they can somehow find a way to go four and one in these last five, and I don't think that's likely. I don't think even three and two is likely. But if they could somehow find a way to go four and one, they're in. What was interesting this one for them is that they had the greatest amount of energy once Patty Ryder was subbed out. It was Ben Long that provided the best intensity, willingness to take the game to the dogs. And it leaves me wondering how much of the fourth quarter was the Saints doing through Ben Long's emergence and how much of it was the Bulldogs maybe not playing at 100%. Maybe they took their foot off the gas a little bit. I'm thinking that Long actually did some meaningful things because the Dogs could have used more of a percentage boost than they got, but I'm not entirely sure. Collectively, though, this was just a very disappointing game for the Saints. I don't care what their energy was late. It should have been there the whole way. Two games ran simultaneously to open up Saturday's five-pack, and I ended up getting the Adelaide-Collingwood game. I remember we had some discussion over this. I had kind of wanted the other game because I didn't really watch the first Brisbane GWS matchup closely, but I ended up with the far better game. A week after the Crows looked absolutely lifeless in a loss to Hawthorne, they came out and played a really quality game leading Collingwood most of the way, but ultimately big performances by Steel Sidebottom, Nick Dacos, and playing his 350th game, Scott Pendlebury did enough to take the pies over the edge. Adelaide 13-8-86, defeated by Collingwood 14-7-91. This was a fun game. The rain didn't really affect it much. It definitely did rain. It was very noticeable at times. But other than maybe one or two kicks per quarter going nowhere near where they were supposed to, it really didn't interfere with the quality of play that much. But this just ended up being a really good game and the sort of loss if you're the Crows that you can live with because they fought the whole way. They competed. They got down by 16 when Jamie Elliott scored with a little under seven minutes left. And you thought that was it. Instead. The Crows scored twice in the next minute off goals by Lachlan Murphy and Taylor Walker. Walker finishing with five on the day. Adelaide really kept the pressure on over the last six minutes, but never had a 
great last opportunity. You had Collingwood really getting desperate, feeling the heat. Jack Dinovan having to rush into the back 50 to provide some defensive support. Mason Cox with a big play, deflecting a Walker kick off a throw-in with a minute left. And then Will Hoskin Elliott and John Noble making a nice play to force the ball outside 50. And then Steele side bottom, forcing a ball out on the full and with one last spoil in the final seconds, all adding up to Collingwood's eighth win in a row. Another one in very unconvincing fashion. They have the worst percentage of any of the teams in the eight and actually have a worse percentage than two of the teams outside of the eight, those being the Bulldogs and power. But once again, they find a way to win a tight game. No surprise that Gidevin was the focus of attention again, long before going into the back 50. There have been conversations for the past couple weeks now about the source of free kicks that he gets and how much can be done in terms of actual rules and how much it is in terms of interpretation when it comes to where high contact is earned. There were a couple times in which that was a question, particularly for him, and there were instances with other players throughout the round, but he was an interesting player to watch beyond that. Not a great kicking game for him, but of course got into all sorts of scraps, and the matchup he had with Patrick Parnell, a first-year guy himself, was really entertaining. Parnell ended up getting banged up a little bit throughout it, but it was his best on-the-man defensive game thus far. Chase Jones also looked much improved compared to some of his earlier performances this year. I remember he looked really bad against Geelong, and it was nice to see him play a much more competitive game. But ultimately, the difference in this game, which we've seen a few times, is that Collingwood has a bunch of players who know how to win and how to finish off tight games. And we saw that again on this day. The fact that they've been able to scrap out these wins is a testament to the structure that's been maintained over the years and what the veterans have done. At the same time, having to scrap out these wins against teams near the very bottom of the ladder does not reflect well on September prospects. Yes, this is Adelaide at home, and they play a whole lot better there. They did take down Richmond there this season and barely lost to Fremantle all the way back in round one. But I would imagine Collingwood supporters still don't feel great about this one. Their relief that they're in the position where they are in fifth and three games clear in ninth place, but still a long way to go, both metaphorically and literally. One unsung hero in this game that I thought really stepped up for Collingwood was Bo McCreary. It wasn't his smoothest game. He was one of the guys who made a couple plays where you could tell, oh yeah, it's a little bit wet. He also had a couple plays where he was maybe a little bit reckless out there. But he's really taken his game to a new level over the course of this season. Yes, he lined up at full forward, but he ended up getting some time all over the ground and was a really big factor in this win. Also of note were a couple of the new guys. Mid-season draftee Josh Carmichael. And maybe my favorite performance of all came from debutant Ash Johnson. He is the brother of Shane McAdam. Mom was in attendance for this game. And I just love Johnson's energy and speed. He was kind of a lightning rod in the forward 50 for the Pies and finished with two goals in the behind, even though he only played about three quarters of the game. A couple stat lines do tell a lot of story for Collingwood in terms of individual players' impacts. If you want to see why some people have Nick Dacos sharpied in as the rising star, you can look toward this game. Three goals straight, 40 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 747 meters gained. One of his most complete games does definitely need some work still on the defensive side, but as I said last week, you can tell right away that he's a Dacos with the nose he has for forward opportunities. 
Scott Pendlebury has seen pretty ageless at times this year. And it's amazing to think that there's a 15-year gap, almost exactly 15 years between him and Dacos with the leadership duties they've already begun to share. Here in game 350, he scored a goal, had 29 disposals and 12 tackles. Also defensively, you had Braden Maynard with 12 tackles, 16 touches for him. Always one of the longer kicks on the team and perhaps in the game. Jack Crisp, another one of those do-it-all players, 18 disposals and an octopus. Pat Lipinski with 28 disposals, 13 tackles, 8 score involvements. Josh Carmichael, a standout performer, a goal, 24 disposals, 8 tackles and 448 meters. And along with Pendlebury, key figure on the old guard once again, steel side bottom, going from the wing to the goal square with great success. A goal, 20 disposals, 7 tackles, a bunch of just really smart plays as well. The kinds of things that don't show up on the stat sheet. Stats of note for the Crows, who looked like a much more complete team. It wasn't just Rory Laird and Ben Keys, but Rory Laird did set an AFL record for tackles in a single game with 20. He kicked it behind, had 31 disposals, 9 clearances, and 558 meters gained. Ben Keys, 22 disposals and 10 clearances. Sam Barry, 21 disposals and 7 tackles. Hard to believe there were any for the rest of the team with what he and Laird did. Jordan Dawson, 20 disposals, 6 tackles, 589 meters gained. Brody Smith, 19 disposals, 7 intercepts, 6 tackles, 693 meters gained. Riley Silthorpe only kicked 1-3, but only missed one easier shot. Finished with 17 disposals and 7 marks. And Taylor Walker finished 5-1 for the match. What I like when Taylor Walker gets going is that the Crows have a good sense of how to get the ball to him and beat the hot hand while also not completely shutting other players out of the equation. Even still with Walker being a central piece, you're starting to see which players for the Crows are going to need to be the central part of their core as they continue the rebuild. Guys like Riley Philthorpe, who should continue to get the opportunities that he's been getting. Sam Barry, who's going to be right up there as one of the best tacklers in the league if he isn't already. Chase Jones and Patrick Parnell. And remember, they've been resting Rochelle as of late because of his hip injury. So that's another piece they're going to have. And Jimmy Rowe was only the medical sub. I still think the Crows are probably a year away from being a year away. But this is a good game for their development. The question is, what's the staff going to look like as they lead that development? Because we've been talking for the past couple of weeks about how Crows fans have started to become really frustrated with Matthew Nix and going higher up at the whole Ricciuto administration. And hey, look, last week, a struggling team led most of the way against Collingwood. Lost late, fired their coach. Might we see Adelaide do it too? I'd be very surprised if there was a mid-season coaching change here. Mostly said that for shits and giggles, but I mean, even with the expectation that David Noble was going to be fired last week, to have it happen after the performance that North had still surprises me so much. And it makes me think that they had to have known that Noble was going to be out the door already. So that Adelaide-Collingwood game and GWS in Brisbane occurred while I was finishing up my packing and getting ready to head out on the road. Mostly Interstate 5, if those of you are interested. It's the road that runs all the way from the San Diego border crossing up to the border crossing near Vancouver. Major road along the Pacific Coast, but I was more than half watching the Giants and Lions then out in Canberra, but I went back and watched it again. And yeah, not a whole lot to report from this one. A couple big things here. One, 
The start of this game was delayed by the need to remove the kicking nets. But two, it seems like the officials were letting a lot of things go early. And three, an accurately kicking Huma cluggage appears to have been a missing piece for the Lions for much of the year. The big problem is that he's getting these big bags of goals in. He's kicked 13 goals, but 11 of those have come in just three games. He kicked three against Essendon round two. He kicked four against the Eagles round eight. And now he's kicked four against the Giants as well. He's making lesser teams pay for their mistakes, but he needs to be able to consistently get those sorts of opportunities. It's good to see the Lions are targeting him more inside 50 now that he's able to transition from the wing like that. But he's got to be able to do that more consistently. However, Brisbane had control of this game most of the way, especially once their defensive pressure increased in the second quarter. I don't think they had played all that well for much of the first quarter. Just a couple Giants mistakes and poor handling allowed them to get four goals to one. Giants fought back in the second quarter, mostly through a couple impressive and football smart plays by Toby Green. Ended up putting the Giants back within seven at halftime. And then the Lions reasserted themselves in the third quarter, dominated in clearances, had six of the first seven of those and the first 12 inside 50s. They were converting on much of their opportunities after an early goalless period to start the quarter and ended up going five goals to one in the quarter to grow their lead to 36. They were nearly doubling up the Giants there. Charlie Cameron with a couple nice plays. Cam Rayner continuing to find the big sticks more and more. It's a game where the team really seemed to come together as an offensive unit. And that's a refreshing sign after the disappointment they had with how many players were out and just plain struggling regardless of who was in there in their loss to Essendon last week. This is a game that felt like it should have been won by more than 40 points. And, and without Toby Green, it definitely would have been with the stoppage success that the Lions had. It was GWS 9-5-59 defeated by Brisbane 15-9-99. And the only real success the Giants had, other than just going to Toby, was managing to get out back on the rare occasions that Harris Andrews went up in the field to try to match up against certain players. The formula for success was visible for the Giants, but one All-Australian defender was enough to disrupt their plan enough that they end up getting in their own way a lot of the time trying to work around that. You know, it's funny... I thought the Giants were going to be that team outside of the eight that nobody wanted to play. And Essendon's kind of taken on that role instead. I would like to see three respectable performances out of the Giants in their final five games. I think that would be a fair benchmark. Considering quality of competition, if they go one and four or even 0 and five to finish out the year, that's fine. I just want to see them look more competitive and respectable than they did in this game. You know, just give me three good performances. You can have two stinkers, but this was. This was pretty disappointing. I would have at least liked to see them try to make this game into a shootout like the first one they played against the Lions. They really just weren't there. Even when it was a tight game at halftime, it never felt like the Lions were ever really in any serious danger. Are you also expecting that three good performances out of five is what is necessary for Mark McVay to get the full-time job? Because that's easily the main talking point going forward for the Giants is who's going to be the man that leads them next season. I don't know what the benchmark is there or who else is even in consideration for the job, what the possibility of Alistair Clarkson would be. I really don't have a read on that. I'm not experienced enough of these things, nor do I have any idea how the Giants' upper management is going to do things. 
but I want them to keep me compelled to watch them three times in their last five games. I do want to note a couple of things for the Lions. First off, when Hugh McCluggage plays like this, that's the sort of performance that can take them all the way this year. If they're going to overcome their finals demons, if they're going to actually make a real run of the flag, they're going to need guys like him to step up in addition to the Lockie Neals, the Harris Andrews, the Daniel Riches. You know, at the start of the year, some of the gambling odds had McCluggage as one of the favorites to win the Brownlow. And like you said, consistency has been his issue. But games like this show you why people think of him in that light. Also, Reese Matheson should have been in the full 22 long before this. He played great, finished with 23 disposals, 10 clearances, kicked a couple of behinds. Though he did have one disposal that absolutely should not have been allowed. He basically threw the ball with two hands like a rugby play. I don't know how the umpires missed that, but he looks good. He looks polished. He belongs out there. And this is a team that's had a very crowded list is going to continue to have a very crowded list. But I think he successfully forced the issue. And no matter what you do, you got to find a way to keep him in the lineup if there are some other good players who end up getting shoved out. McCluggage, as mentioned, four goals in the behind, 29 disposals, eight marks, 542 meters game. One of Lockie Neal's bigger running games, 495 meters to go with his 26 disposals. Kadeen Coleman, you can see just how much they missed him against Essendon. He had 25 disposals, seven marks, gained 454 meters. It's so nice to see Cam Rayner fully at speed. He had three goals in the behind to go with 19 disposals, eight score involvements. And Daniel McStay, two goals behind, 15 disposals, 11 score involvements, and seven marks. McStay was a really important figure as the second Ruckman in the absence of Oscar McInerney, who was their one COVID out this round. Remember, McStay, along with Coleman, Andrews, Answorth, was out last round in protocols. And yeah, Coleman has been even more vital as of late since Daniel Rich went down. And he's such an exciting player to watch wherever he is on the field. Loved watching him stream through the middle and kick his goal from 52 meters out in the middle of the fourth quarter. A very complete player who, up to this year and up to these past few rounds in particular, hasn't gotten the attention he's been due. And Lockie Neal did really have to work for some of those disposals, which is why he may have been more of a runner. A very heavy tag was placed on him. Very early on, it was actually Stephen Canelio and his eyebrows, surprisingly enough. Ended up being Lockie Ash, as I expected for most of the game, though. Yeah, you would have thought it would have been either Ash or Callum Ward to do that. Canelio ended up having a very active game with 23 disposals and an octopus. The two Giants who outdid him in possessions were Tim Tarano and Harry Hemmelberg, each with 29 disposals and each with a goal as well. Tarano with eight score involvements. Hemmelberg also with 10 intercepts, eight marks, and gained 664 meters. Been amazing how well he's done slotting back into the back third. Along with Hemmelberg in the back, Sam Taylor with 20 disposals and 15 intercepts. Isaac Cumming with 18 disposals, 80 intercepts, 8 marks, 485 meters gained. The most visible and best performer for the Giants on Saturday was Toby Green, who kicked four straight on seven marks. But one player can't take down 18 or 22 or 23, however you look at it. And with the Lions more than doubling up on clearances, 49 to 24, and nearly tripling from stoppages, 37 to 13, it was going to be their day regardless of what one or even four Giants did. By the time the Saturday standalone game had started, 
My dad and I were just about to get on the road, didn't watch really any of this live past the opening couple minutes, and you remember what we said going into it? How we wondered why the hell this was the standalone game of the round? Well, I think that the way it unfolded rationalized that positioning. As I said in the round preview, welcome to the Lee Adams era, people. I was following this game for as much as I was staying up during the drive and just trying to see when it was that Richmond would eventually take advantage, but their inaccurate kicking handed the game to North when they had 11 fewer scores. It reminded me a little bit of how Collingwood squandered their chance to take the round four contest with the Eagles on a day when West Coast were exceptionally accurate. North did not finish particularly accurate. They were 2-6 for the final term, but by three-quarter time, they were 12-2, and Richmond were 8-16. First off, very happy for North. You can see just how much it meant to not only the players, but everyone involved with the club. Seeing Sonia Hun celebrating and immediately finding Ben Cunnington was really neat. For a fan base that's had very little to get excited about in years, this was a fun one. But ultimately, Richmond did a lot more to lose this game than North did to win it. Let's note that the expected score for this game was 103.1 to 76.6. The final scoreline doesn't even tell the full story, honestly. I mean, 14-8-92 to 11-22-88 says a lot. But it wasn't just that Richmond couldn't kick straight and that they missed some mind-numbingly easy shots. But they were also just sloppy in general, giving away 50-meter penalties left and right. And then in the final minute, Jake Arts would have had a set shot to give the Tigers a lead. And for absolutely no reason, he decided to play on and ended up getting just a behind out of it. And that was their last chance. If he had just taken the set shot, they would have had the lead with somewhere between 30 to 50 seconds left, assuming he would have hit it. And I think that's the play that really exemplifies this game for Richmond, even though Arts, as the medical sub, certainly wasn't the main culprit as to why they lost this game. There were far more reasons than that. Jack Revolt kicking 2-6, for example, is pretty bad. This is one of those games, if you played this game out 100 times, North would win it maybe two or three of those times. And this happened to be one of those two or three. The really nice thing about this game when you're looking at North side is that it wasn't just the typical select few characters that helped them really get the job done. Paul Curtis continued to emerge, a second solid game for him in a row, but I in no way expected Bailey Scott to be so prominent coming back from a hip injury. Good reminder of what he's able to do. Was worried about North's ruck situation and how much Todd Goldstein was going to be able to push forward with Tristan Jerry out, but Callum Coleman-Jones had a nice performance against his old side, no less. And how about Jaden Stevenson silencing his critics in a big way? Maybe he doesn't mind playing for one of the smaller membership teams in Victoria. You know, it seems like most of the people at North do like David Noble. Jai Simpkin had some very nice things to say about him post-game, but I think Jaden Stevenson just didn't mesh with what David Noble was trying to do. I also want to shout out Phoenix Spicer, who was involved in a lot of the action towards the forward 50, kind of a lot of those entry kicks and handballs right at the 50 that led to some of their high percentage chances. Kim Zerhar finished 6-1 for the game and kicked the winning goal. 2.40 left on the clock. It was a boundary throw in the Todd Goldstein directed to Zerhar with a nice little two-handed hit out and Cam put it through. Zerhar had five goals in the first half 
the Rouge went into the break with a 62 to 30 lead after Paul Curtis scored. After the siren, he had a really nice mark with Nick Blostone draped on him. So North led by 32 at halftime. By 28 late in the third, when they scored off a really nice handball sequence that culminated in Simpkins' lone goal of the game. Ah, well, if it isn't the Simp. And then finally, the Tigers woke up and actually started kicking accurately, and it seemed like a comeback was inevitable. Noah Balta's goal from 57 meters just outside of the center square at the third quarter siren got the lead down to 10. And you thought at that point, all right, here they come. It's been fun while it lasted, but this is Richmond's game. And not only did they keep the comeback rolling, they ended up taking the lead, even with a couple more revolt misses to put him at 2-6 on the game. Noah Balta somehow had a miss from inside the goal square with 9-14 to go, but about a minute and a half later, Jaden Short scored off free kick for high contact. And you thought at that point, all right, that was cute. That was really inspiring for North. They played two competitive games in a row, but Richmond simply needed to win this one. They came right back inside 50. Shea Bolton missed on the run. Not a bad miss, though. Not like in that Port Adelaide game where he kicked 05, but still would have been a huge momentum swing. Then the bad goal kicking was contagious because Callum Coleman-Jones had a really bad miss in front with 5.33 left. And yet, North were able to get the last goal. Hugh Greenwood made a bad decision to play on to advantage. Not a lucky break because it led to a boundary throw-in. And off that throw-in, Goldstein set up Zerhar. Ben Miller scored his first goal midway through that final quarter to cut the lead down to five. He actually scored it from beyond 50 with a nice little shepherd from Liam Baker. But he had a really bad kick go out on the fall with a minute 23 left. It seemed like that was going to be it. But Noah Cumberland, who played a pretty good game overall, ripped a mark away from Jaden Stevenson, sent the long kick into Arts, and then Arts played on. And all of a sudden, the Tigers are eatering on the edge of the eighth. They are still in eighths by 3% over the Bulldogs. They're also 13.3% ahead of the Saints. But they still remain just a single game ahead of Port Adelaide and Gold Coast. And it's also a two-way gap between them and seventh, that being at this point Carlton. So while those first seven, I'd say, are pretty damn secure, Richmond have a long way to go still before they can put themselves anywhere near an unassailable position. And I think it's going to have to be a battle until round 23 for them. This was a huge chance for the Tigers to secure their position. Combine that with the Saints not only getting beaten, but getting crushed on percentage. Port Adelaide losing to Melbourne. Gold Coast losing to Essendon. And instead, that eight isn't so secure. And you know, a week ago, I said I thought the current eight are going to be the final eight. You can definitely argue now that the Bulldogs could get in over the Tigers, even though I do think their remaining schedule does favor Richmond some. This thing is nowhere near over. It could, like you said, come all the way down to round 23. It's been so weird. Two weeks in a row now, the Tigers have just pissed away games they should have won between the inaccurate kicking, poor decision-making. You know, against Gold Coast, it was mostly just inaccurate kicking. We look at some of their tight losses. Yeah, they missed a couple of kicks in that Sydney loss, but both that and the loss to Geelong were just games where they got beat. They played well and lost a tight game to a good team. It happens. Go back earlier in the season to the Carlton loss. You know, round one is weird. The Blues kind of caught them off guard. They just got beat. But these last two rounds, they've done so much to beat themselves. And that's something that 
A, you wouldn't expect out of Richmond, and B, you especially wouldn't expect out of any team this late in the season. So what are we going to see out of the Tigers the rest of the way? Are they going to bounce back from this? Is this going to be a galvanizing point? Or is this just kind of who they are? Talented but sloppy, which, again, seems so unlike them. It seemed like for years, even last year, when they were just undone by injuries and not having enough talent to overcome those injuries, they didn't beat themselves like this. So where do they go from here? Well, they've got Fremantle and Brisbane the next two weeks, both of those in Melbourne. But their margin for error is largely gone. And they've got to keep those games close if they don't win them. Then they travel to Port before taking on Hawthorne and Essendon and at the end of the season. And those are two teams that have been playing much better as of late as well. So they don't have anything easy the rest of the way either. I still do think that at this point, 12 wins will be enough for that eighth spot. But they really lost any margin for error they had. From our standpoint, this is awesome because it makes the final weeks a lot more interesting. From a Tiger standpoint, they should be pissed because they went from having a shot at the top four to having a very loose hold on that final spot. Let's not get it twisted. Despite some really accurate kicking for goal and a couple of big individual showings, North were not great. But this is the sort of game that you would have wanted to see out of them throughout the year. You know, even if they haven't kicked so well, with some bright spots, both some of the more usual suspects like Luke Davies, Uniac, and some of the surprises like Bailey Scott. And for the second week in a row, they actually looked like they were together. They were engaged. And if they could do that twice more over the final five weeks, I will be satisfied. Stats of note for North. I think despite Zerhar kicking 6-1, three votes might just go to Jai Simkin, considering he had a goal, 34 disposals, nine clearances, Nine score involvement, six tackles, and 502 meters gained. Luke Davies' Uniac didn't rack up clearances like crazy, but still had 28 disposals, seven marks, and gained 560 meters. Bailey Scott, a goal, 26 disposals, 528 meters. Jaden Stevenson, a goal, 23 disposals, 835 meters gained. Callum Coleman-Jones, a behind. Yes, it was a really bad kick from a high percentage spot, but he also had 18 disposals. And Todd Goldstein finished with 25 hitouts and seven score involvements, plus a goal. Ben McKay wasn't the only one defensively, though he did rack up 11 intercepts. It seemed like he wasn't just a one-man show. I thought this was definitely Aiden Core's best game to this point. I liked how Aiden Bonner and Flynn Perez got involved. That North were able to manage what they did, kicking so well for most of the game, despite their disposal efficiency inside 50, being just 52.2% when you expect teams to be getting into the 60s is a good sign because it means they should be getting more opportunities than they got in this game, and they'll hopefully be able to continue to convert those at a reasonable rate. Remember how ineffective they were inside 50 when they got absolutely blasted by Jalal. You can't expect the kicking accuracy to carry over week to week, but you expect the good fundamental play and the level of mental focus they had and just the level of commitment where all 23 players, and I say 23 because they included the medical sub. Charlie Wilzaro had to come in late when Nick Larkey suffered a heel injury. Hopefully, Sue is okay. That, by the way, is one of my favorite nicknames right now. They all looked on the same page and bought in. And even if there isn't a ton of talent compared to other teams, they look like a quality professional team and one that maybe would be able to avoid the wooden spoon. The stats are interesting to look at for Richmond because of the sloppy play they had, you know, you end up wondering how many of these statistics that jump off the page are because of good play by these certain players 
or because they had to try and mop up their own mistakes, their teammates' mistakes so much. You had Dion Prestia leading the way in terms of possessions with 26 disposals, Trent Caution with 24 and 9 intercepts. He's clearly all right after rehabbing from a broken collarbone. Jaden Short, a busy all-around game, kicking 1-1 with 24 disposals and 9 score involvements while gaining 533 meters. Jack Graham with a goal and 22 disposals. Surprised we're not focusing on his tackles again. Nick Vlostone returning from suspension. 22 disposals, 9 marks, and 6 tackles. A couple full forwards had high volume chances, but couldn't convert on them enough. Noah Cumberland in just his second game, although it will be listed as his third because he was an unused medical sub in one. Had a 3-4 with 11 score involvements. Jack Revel 2-6 with 12 score involvements and 8 marks. Going from full forward to down back, Dylan Grimes had 10 intercepts, but had a chance to have a couple other really important ones that could have ended up turning the tide in the end. North one clearances 43 to 34, including 32 21 from stoppage. Other than that stretch at the end of the third and start of the fourth, never really let Richmond get on one of those runs where it's, you know, clearance, goal, clearance, goal. I have an idea. You know how Richmond didn't really kick straight? You know who might be able to help them with that? Who might that be? Morris Rioli Jr. Was omitted for this game. Maybe it's another case of them trying to diversify his play and giving him time to do that in the VFL, but definitely felt like a missing piece. Meanwhile, his nephew, his older nephew, Daniel, was nearly invisible, and I think that's the first time all year that we've really said that. If the rest of the Tigers played with any level of control, it wouldn't have mattered. They would have been able to withstand a bad game from Daniel, but the whole team was so sloppy and it added up. As always, you can find our thoughts in real time, or at least close to real time, usually within five minutes of when things actually happen, on Twitter, at Americans Footy. You can find me independently at Castle Media. And Ethan's going to be more and more active there with some of his work with his new gig at the San Francisco Standard, especially as we get closer and closer to high schools coming back to start their academic years and American football getting underway there. My Twitter is much less interesting. It's at BenjaminHK01, but we'll definitely be doing some more music writing again soon. And Ethan's cat, Brian Harambe, we call him the footy cat a lot of the time. He is on Instagram at cat named Brian. And I know that Brian woke up a couple times when he was sleeping by your side on your bed uh, during the late pair of games on Saturday because you were understandably animated about the Cats' performance against the Blues. I still don't understand why they decided to schedule these games the way they did, but it ultimately ended up working out. I had thought for a while this was a game the Cats were going to lose, like not just during this game, but for weeks leading up to it. I thought this would be a tricky matchup. There were still elements that got exploited. Not having Tom Stewart meant it was kind of pick your poison with Harry Mackay and Charlie Kernow. They ended up getting pretty good results against Mackay. Sam DeConing did a great job on him winning the initial DeConing Derby. But the Cats definitely struggled with Charlie Kernow, who might have been the most impressive individual player. And I say that because for Geelong, it was a collective team effort in a really impressive win. Final score, Carlton 8-7-55, defeated by Geelong 12-13-85 for a crowd of more than 68,000 at the MCG. The toughest thing about this game is going to be figuring out who do you give the Brownlow votes to because it was such a good team effort, whether it was Mitch Duncan and Joel Selwood moving the ball, Zach Tui 
picking on a, a big role as an interceptor. I love what Brad Close did. They actually let him play further back and work in that slingshot role again. Something that I've loved seeing from round one. And the more we see of it, the more I like it. Yes, Mitch Duncan can do it as well. But I think Close has that dynamic element to his game that just can't be replaced. Jack Henry struggled a bit at times with turnout, but finished with 10 intercepts. Tyson Stengel did not have a great game, but it didn't matter. Oh, and Jeremy Cameron kicked three behind, but he also kicked three goals, including what could be the goal of the year. It was a key play late in the third quarter that opened up the lead to 29, where he picked up a bouncing ball around the right boundary. Deke Lewis Young and kicked what I thought could easily be the goal of the year. It's one of those plays that you show to people who have no idea how the sport works and they're impressed. I had mentioned last week that I was really impressed with Mark Blitzov's work as that utility guy and that he's a player that really completes Geelong in so many ways. And he did that once again in this contest. He and Reese Stanley are definitely far better in the ruck than they were last year. And they outdid Tom DeConing a lot of the time. But Blitzov's being able to go up and down the ground the way he did in this game and the stamina he's got means that he could always be that spare guy in either 50. And when the Blues ended up having their better moments, he ended up being the guy to help stem the cats bleeding wherever it was on the ground that they were struggling. And that makes him a piece that is unique to Geelong, but that so many teams visibly lack. You have some guys that are able to move, you know, between the 50s, like Griffin Loke for Fremantle. You have players who are positioned all over the place, like Richmond does with changing a lot of pieces around. It worked a lot up until this past game. But for one guy to be able to do it all like Blitzovs is pretty much unheard of in the rest of the league. You know, I don't trust him kicking for goal, but I trust him doing pretty much everything else. I mean, you said it. he's got really good stamina and he's a really good athlete. I wonder how that would lend itself to his performance in any sort of track and field events. Well, he was a steeplechaser. He was. Oh, yeah, he was. And I wonder if he'll be watching on from Australia, as my dad and I do from Eugene tomorrow when we have the men's 3,000 meter steeplechase final. I also want to mention that both Blitzobs and Reese Stanley really struggled last year. Remember Max Don lighting the cats up both in the fourth quarter of round 23 and in the preliminary final? They're able to match up better with guys like that. You knew it was going to be a good night when Stanley took a hanger and kicked the goal in the very first minute the miscommunication by the Blues that let him get open in the goal square to begin with. But that was a really good sign. And while I am worried a bit about the Cavs peaking too early, there's reason to feel confident right now. It's so fun listening to the hosts on, whether it's bounce, first crack, if you can survive five minutes of best on ground, talking about just how well the Cavs have played. And what I liked was the team on first crack saying, you know, this is the first time they've really made other teams try to stop them instead of just being the ones to go out and beat the other team style. And I don't think that's been done really by any opponent since Fremantle. I also want to mention another good game by Brian Myers. Just clean disposal throughout. Got a goal because Joel Selwood was a good teammate and fed him right in the goal square in the fourth quarter to stretch the lead to 33. Margin got as big as 39 before... Tom DeConing got a really nice goal that his sister missed. It was funny because Seven actually had her out there interviewing them before the game. And then they showed the family in the crowd reacting to the goal. And then you see Zoe go, what What happened? Jack Silvani got a late goal in what was otherwise a really crappy night for him. Maybe the worst game he's played all year. 
He just seemed totally out of control and out of sync. Also of note, Will Hayes got suspended two weeks for a tackle that concussed Sam Menegola in the opening minute. I didn't think this was that bad. I didn't think it was really suspension-worthy, and a lot of other people seem to agree on that. The Blues have said that they are accepting the ban. I don't get why. That that doesn't make sense to me. You want another example of the AFL taking a Hammurabi approach and deciding on the length of the suspension, if there's one at all, based on the impact on the offended player? You see an example right here. Yes, it was a dangerous tackle. Yes, it deserved to be a free kick. But I'm surprised this got more than a fine. Yeah, when I saw that hit in the moment, I wasn't thinking suspension at all. Anyway, I'm just very satisfied with how this game went. The Cats are now in position to, unless they really slip up, secure not just a top four spot, but probably be the home team for a qualifying final, even if that's not a true home game. The good news is they are now 4-1 and one at the G this year. And 9-2 and two within the past two years. Yeah, I think it's time to really start talking about this team's flag hopes. And the only concern would be, have they peaked too early? Which, I don't know if they've entirely peaked yet. I really hope they haven't. I think there are still ways they could be better, especially in terms of kicking accuracy. Remember, they've missed some easy shots the last couple of games. They kicked 12-13 in this one. They had similar struggles in what was otherwise a really strong performance against the Demons. So yeah, they could still be a little bit better. Stats of note, Mitch Duncan, 26 disposals, 459 meters gained. Joel Selwood behind, 25 disposals, 10 score involvements and 9 marks. Zach Tui, 24 disposals, 8 intercepts, 6 tackles, 471 meters gained. And three votes for the Golden Fist on bounce. Bang! By the way, I like Bernie Vince on bounce. But he can't do golden fist like Ben Dixon can. You know, only Dicko can really hold like the long vowels and stuff. You know, calling guys out like Alira and Mark Blitzout. And it's just, it's so much better that way. I wouldn't mind if Bernie Vince was more regularly on the show, though, because he's fun. And it's nice to have newer blood in there as well. Just more recent players providing their insight on the current game. Right close to behind, 18 disposals, nine score involvements. Tom Atkins, 17 disposals, 8 tackles. Jeremy Cameron, as we mentioned, kicked 3-3 to go with 11 score involvements. Jack Henry, 10 intercepts. Also want to note a couple guys who didn't have staggering stat lines but played well. Once again, Max Holmes looked really good on the wing and just continues to impress me. He had two goals on 15 disposals. Another quietly solid game for Zach Guthrie, who had a goal as part of his night. Jed Muse came on as the injury sub and did a quality job with his 14 disposals and five marks. And losing Menegola didn't hurt them anywhere near as much as I feared it would. And Ryan Myers with a goal on 16 disposals. Really the only two guys that you could look at and say you really expect more out of. Gary Rowan, who was pretty quiet, only had five touches in the behind. And Mark O'Connor, who did a quietly solid job, but nothing really to write home about. Also, a bit of a quieter game for Isaac Smith with only 16 disposals, but I like the way the team moved the ball. I've said at times I haven't been enamored with some Smith's motion, and just there are just times when he feels a little bit out of control. And I think you see just the difference of maybe Brad Close getting a few more of those touches over Smith, how much more fluid the team's movement is. And you, one thing I will say about Carlton Charlie Kernow does not look 6'4, he looks smaller, but he plays bigger. He takes marks like he's 6'7 or 6'8. And that was somewhere I thought without Tom Stewart, the Cats were really going to get exposed. It looked like it early. And then 
they were able to minimize his contribution some as the game went on. And his work is even more visible on a night when Harry McKay was completely shut down by Sam DeConing once they made that matchup switch, didn't really hear from him again. And it was a very good move by Chris Scott and his staff to put Sam on McKay. Basically, DeConing and Carnout wasn't the right matchup, but a taller forward like McKay, DeConing can hold his ground against and kind of push out of the way. And again, he doesn't look like he's anywhere near as muscular as he is. We say it every week. He's got this kind of like deceptive physicality. Makai limited to just four marks, and he got just one behind off of those. Meanwhile, the better statistical performances for Carlton started with a couple other usual suspects. Sam Walsh with 33 disposals and eight clearances. Geelong all right in the clearance game, but you can't ever completely neutralize both Walsh and Patrick Cripps there. And it was Walsh who had the greater impact. Sam Doherty. 29 disposals from halfback. Zach Fisher, two behinds, 27 disposals at 450 meters. George Hewitt, 1-1 one, one on 26 touches. Nick Newman with 26 as well and eight intercepts working toward the back. He was challenged a lot and stood up to the job a decent amount, but Carlton just weren't efficient enough inside 50. 42.9% is very low. Geelong weren't great either, 52.9, but when you have that percent gap, it is visible. And it's no surprise that the Blues committed 10 more turnovers as well. A lot of teams have struggled with efficiency inside 50 against the Cavs. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's got a lot to do with the quality of Geelong's defense. They had eight guys combined for 50 intercept possessions. Two things from this game are going to stick with me. Jeremy Cameron's goal late in the third quarter, which I really think should be not just goal of the week, but a contender for goal of the year. My favorite of the year is still... Toby Nankervis with a little ninja kick out of midair way back in round two. And yes, Sam Draper had a really good one this round as well, but I think Cameron's fits right in number two. And remember, Nankervis did not get nominated for that. He should have won twice, and he hasn't had any. The other thing that's going to stick with me is Sam DeConing being shown on camera right after the final siren going, fuck yeah! You know, the sort of reaction you would expect after... A win that came down in the final possessions, not one that was decided early in the fourth quarter, says a lot about A, how much it means to beat his brother, and B, just how bought in all these guys are right now. I know the guys on Chaps, Chat, Caps like to joke a lot about how overused the phrase culture is, but to see guys that fired up after a comfortable win is a really good sign. And combine that with, you know, they weren't over-exuberant singing the club song or anything. It's not like they were acting like they just won the final or anything like that. They understood the assignment, they took care of business, and they were very business-like about it, while still letting the emotion show at, like, just the right balance. Meanwhile, for the Blues the rest of the way, again, I think they're stable in a final spot. The top seven are two games clear of the trio of teams on 36 points. They've got a chance to rebound against GWS. Then they go to Adelaide, and we can see if that's still a tough task, but I still like them in that matchup. Rotten way to finish, as we talked about before, at the GABA against Brisbane and then at the G against Melbourne and Collingwood. But you've also got to remember, the Blues are already exceeding expectations in the first year of the Michael Voss era. And for them not getting it done in these sorts of games and struggling against these top teams late in the season, for that to feel like a letdown? reflects really well on the progress they've already made. And they should be getting Mark Pittenet back within the next week or two. That definitely doesn't hurt. 
by the time that this late window of games was happening, my dad and I were well on our way on Interstate 5. But basically, we just drove the first, I think it was four and a half hours without stopping. And then we finally stopped at this huge pilot truck stop in a town called literally Weed. It is named after a person, by the way. It is in one of the northernmost counties in California, the northernmost through which Interstate 5 passes, Siskiyou County. Weed is definitely one of the most famous towns of like 2,000 people. And they sell a lot of souvenirs for a place that small. It's about 50 miles of the state line, but it is in what's called the state of Jefferson because there are some separatists out there for sure. That's something that spreads into parts of Southern Oregon, but I was bringing that up because that was where I really first took a look at what was happening in the Fremantle Sydney game. And at that point, it was getting to be a close game. Fremantle were still on the right side of things. And very quickly, once we got back on the road and once we were really approaching the state line, I realized, wait a minute, the Swans got over them. How exactly did they do that? And the way they did it was because they were really the first team all year to adjust and play into Fremantle's lockdown zone defense, that sort of full court press that we've been praising so much this year. They definitely struggled with it early, and they were very inaccurate early as well. Both teams had 11 scoring shots at halftime, but Sydney were down 15. It was Fremantle 6-5-41 to Sydney 3-8-26, and the Swans had gotten off to a slow start to begin with, with just one goal to show from the first quarter. But they dominated the early passages of play in the second quarter, but only had three behinds to show for it from Isaac Heaney, Sam Reed, and Will Hayward. Matt Taverner had the first goal of the quarter to make it 27 to 10, went completely against the tide. Between that and Bailey Banfield following up less than a minute later, I would have really thought the Swans were in trouble. But then they took the hand that Fremantle dealt and played right into it. They slowly came up the ground, just kind of chipping to each other. The short game did them wonders, all sorts of uncontested marks. And when they got the chance to kick longer, they were still smart about the opportunities that they sought. I could tell that the momentum was with them because after Fremantle had scored with nine seconds left in the half, that was the Schultz once again, or the Australian broadcaster seems to be saying Schultz like it's almost an I there instead of a U. The Swans got a quick setter clearance and Callum Mills got the ball to Buddy Franklin just before the halftime siren. I had a feeling that had a potential to really buoy them going into the third quarter. And then, wouldn't you know it, between that and the adjustments that John Longmire made, as he seems to do successfully pretty much every game, the Swans ended up kicking all three goals of the third quarter. When they moved away from kicking short, it was because they saw opportunities open. They were able to hit them in a couple of goals that were really good examples of that in each quarter. Going into the fourth, Errol Golden had a couple excellent kicks. The first to set up Will Hayward in the left pocket and the second to get a tight angle left-footed goal himself. It's hard to believe that through all this, Fremantle grabbed the lead back at, at the start of the fourth quarter. They kicked the first two goals pretty quickly. Lockie Schultz got on the end of another one when Matt Fife released him out of the contest, and then Michael Walters was taken high by Patty McCartan. But I still felt good about the Swans. They'd adjusted well, and they just needed to get a couple contested possessions, and they'd be able to feel things out from there. And I was right. Isaac Heaney ended up getting a set shot to go his way to take the lead. Then you had Golden's goal. A couple of the Toms worked well together because Tom Hickey saw exactly where Tom Papley was and brought the ball down for him. Made it 16 points with 6.06 left. 
And I had a feeling that was a dagger. Sure enough, each team only scored one goal the rest of the way. And this is a win that shows some of the best that the Sydney Swans have to offer. They took control in terms of offensive possession from the second quarter onward. And in the second half, they really made that impact show on the scoreboard. Even though I had a feeling into a decent amount of third quarter that their early inaccuracy would come back to haunt them. And then defensively, the McCartans especially and the Sydney backs in general got to the ball first when Fremantle tried to kick down the line. And that's one of the Dockers' stronger suits throughout the season. So well done all around to Sydney, especially coming out of halftime. Two things about this game. First off, is Joe Lamarty a member of Sydney's best 22, even when everyone's healthy? Because I've really liked what I've seen out of him two weeks in a row now. Finished with just five touches, but still managed two goals. He's in an interesting spot because he's had some experience as a ruck at both the VFL and AFL level, but in the reserves has done very well as a forward as of late, kicking some four and five goal bags. I think once Buddy's out of the picture, there's definitely room for him. The question is, how is he able to differentiate himself in the moment? With this being a lesser game from Sam Reed, maybe you're wondering if Amarty has that place now. It's just hard to figure out. And remember, Logan McDonald wasn't in once again. You could argue for either Reed or Amarty to kind of take those Tom Hawkins, Charlie Dixon forward throw and ruck contests. And to have two guys that can do that when most teams have none is a great problem to have. Also, Damian Barrett has been hammering this point home, and I fully agree. Chad Warner's going to win a brown blow. Either Warner or Golden, maybe both of them. Warner is definitely the energizer out of the two of them and out of that whole group. The question is, does he stay as a midfielder and does he stay in that center group and then charge forward when necessary? Does he just become a full-on half forward? Meanwhile, Golden is such a steady player in terms of both handballing and kicking, and the fact that he was able to finish so brilliantly this game shows another big part of the upside that he still has. See, I think Golden is the one to play further forward. I think Warner fits better in more of a midfield role, and that's, I think, mostly because I like Golden so much further forward when really both of them are going to be fine in either spot. I think the best combination is to have Golden the further forward too. I really like the idea based on what I've seen. I trust John Longwire to make the right moves. I trust Ty Canelli and Jared McVeigh, the midfield coaches, to continue to develop those players as well. You've got so much good youth on that Sydney team, and to be focusing on those two as potential elite talents already is so great a sign for a team that, no doubt about it, still has top four prospects this year with the form they're in, the run home they have and how teams currently above them, like Frio, have faltered. The Swans did a good job figuring out Fremantle's zone, but I also thought from the parts of this game that I did watch that Frio's defensive pressure wasn't quite on par with where it usually is. I also noticed that in the win over Port Adelaide, even before the power made their late push. I'm not saying the Dockers' best football of the season is completely behind them, but they certainly haven't been in that form lately. Can they get back to it? Certainly. Will they get back to it this year? That's a fair question. And as much as I think these guys are going to be a factor for a long time to come because they're so young and so loaded with talent, I don't think they're ever going to have quite this much depth because some of the guys that don't get playing time are going to ask for trades so that they can actually play. So I think they really need to seize this opportunity while it's there. It's tough to pick out one best defender for Frio. There are guys that ended up having bigger stats. 
I really like Hayden Young personally. I like Brennan Cox. And when he's a defender, I like Griffin Logue. But I also like Griffin Logue as a forward. Logue did an alright job on Buddy, and he was getting a decent amount of praise from Justin Longmere for that. And remember, he's given up some size there. Logue is 6'4", but he definitely doesn't have the same sort of build that Franklin has. For the Swans, it's no surprise that Chad Warner led the way statistically. 1-1, 35 disposals, 11 score involvements, 8 intercepts, 7 clearances, gained 800 meters, He did it all. He got other players involved even more than he was involved himself. And that's the type of player that, as you said, Ethan, could definitely end up winning a Brownlow. The one that I've always thought of in that role, Errol Golden, finished up 2-1, 23 disposals, and 8 marks. There's so much going on in the forward two-thirds of the ground for the Swans. Ali Florent with a behind, 21 disposals, 11 marks. He gained 584 meters. Luke Parker, 0-2. Again, all sorts of inaccuracy, but 11 marks on a 24 disposal day. Robbie Fox and Jake Lloyd, each with 13 marks. Fox with 24 touches, Lloyd with 25. Isaac Heaney got on the right end of a set shot, and that was huge, both for his play and for the Swans as a whole. He won two, 18 disposals, nine score involvements. And along with Warner and Florence, Callum Mills was one of the bigger runners. 471 meters gained and functional meters gained. 26 disposals of a high, nine marks. Nine tackles for him. Another one of those do-it-all guys that because he's been around for a bit longer, we're kind of more used to it. And because of that, it almost feels like he slips under the radar sometimes. Defensively for the Swans, the McCartans were getting in the right place a lot, but that doesn't necessarily show up on the stat sheet. From a pure statistical standpoint, it was Dane Rampy with 11 marks in an 18 disposal performance that probably did the most for anyone on the fantasy side of things. The Swans were efficient with the ball in hand. 76.5% overall is an excellent figure. 48.1 inside 50 is less so, and I feel like a lot of that is a reflection of the poor kicking they had. But the volume of opportunities they got from being efficient elsewhere helped make up for that. That sort of efficiency overall against Fremantle is incredibly rare. For the Dockers, Will Brody, 24 disposals. Luke Ryan, also 24 disposals, gained 709 meters. Hayden Young, 23 disposals, 9 marks, 459 meters gained. The ageless David Mundy, a goal in 21 disposals. Running Cox, 10 intercepts. The Dockers won hitouts, 48-19. And they won clearances, just 35-29. You'd think, though, that would have been enough to put them in a really good spot. And yet, Sydney really adapted to this matchup well. And I think they gave kind of a blueprint on how to match up with Fremantle. Frio tend to play contest-heavy games, and those statistics work really well in those scenarios. But because the Swans made this game uncontested, the reasons this game ended up the way it did were off the stat sheet. And it's a game that you really need to watch in order to fully appreciate. There are some games where definitely the stats can tell enough of the story that you can fill in the gaps yourself. I think you really need to take a closer look at this one to examine how both teams are going to be going forward. At what point in this game did you feel like, okay, the Swans are going to win this? Because I know you said you liked their chances even after Frio had retaken the lead. But you had also said that you thought Sydney's inaccuracy early would come back to haunt them. So when did that kind of switch on the, you know, who do you think is going to win a meter? It was when Joel Marty kicked his second goal from a difficult angle to put that within three with about 11 minutes remaining in the third quarter. It was just at that point that I thought, okay, they've been able to put together 
the good possessions. Now they're kicking better as well. There's no way that they're going to falter from here enough to let this game get away from them. Again, I just had this game on in the background. So I really didn't have that level of perception. The way you've talked about this one, though, definitely a game I want to go back and look at more closely. And with the MLB All-Star break, should have more than enough time to do that. The Swans are able to read what other teams are doing really well. And their ability to do that combined with a road home in which they play just one more team that's currently in the eight, that being Collingwood at the SCG in round 22, bodes really well for their chances to get above, at the very least, get a home elimination final and maybe manage to crack that top four. All it takes is one more loss by Brisbane to Fremantle to really open that up. And remember, Frio's next three weeks are going to be pretty grueling. At Richmond, home against the Demons, at the Bulldogs, before finishing off with the Eagles as Frio's home version of the Western Derby, and then the Giants in Canberra. We had another Sunday triple header to round things out in round 18. The first of those games, really the only game of the round that doesn't have any bearing on the finals picture, but an interesting one nonetheless, where Hawthorne led most of the way, but didn't really pull away until late for a 25-point win over the Eagles. Hawks winning this one 15-12-102 to 12-5-77. You're the Eagles fan. Your thoughts. Yeah, let's dive into this one. I was actually talking to a couple Eagles fans at the World Championships. They had noticed my hat, and I'd struck up a conversation with them, mostly because I saw the, the Australian flag, and I could tell they were looking for where the Australian athlete's tent was out toward the practice area. But we were saying how we didn't expect much out of this game at all from the Eagles because they were playing against a coach who really knew their system. Again, Sam Mitchell played with the Eagles for a year, coached with them the year they won their flag. And I thought that he would be able to capitalize on his knowledge of a system that hasn't really changed that much since then and blow this game apart when it was actually the Eagles that took advantage early on. Their two main forwards each got a goal in as many minutes, those being Jack Darling and Josh Kennedy. And the Eagles led by 11 at quarter time, 26 to 15. But then Hawthorne came to life. They started coming through the middle in their classic counterattacking way and kicked seven goals to three in the second quarter to grab the lead, which they would not relinquish. It was Will Day, weirdly enough, playing forward where he'd played almost the entire year in defense, he was mostly in the goal square for this one. Day got a delayed handball from Ben McAvoy to put the Hawks ahead early in the second quarter, and they never trailed again, even though they were pushed down into a single-digit lead again a couple times. There was a chance for the Eagles to gain momentum back when Jamie Cripps nearly got a deliberate out-of-bounds call against Denver Granger Barras, but it wasn't to be. And also when Jake Waterman, who continues to do good things in the forward half, but is just always that step or two away from really reaching the next level, had a behind just before halftime to keep it a two-goal Hawks lead. I could tell that the outcome of this game wasn't in doubt. The team's ran on relatively even terms the rest of the way, but it was Hawthorne who had the greater control in this one throughout. Even with the counters that they had, I also noticed that sometimes they were taking more time to move out of the back half when they had the chance to really establish possession for themselves early on and not have to get out of contests, that's a good development for them because we were wondering how long it was going to take for them to be able to play better at a slower pace. The big thing for the Hawks in this one was that Luke Bruce didn't have anyone who could match up against him in this one. 
Tom Barras had to be left open to do the roving work that he does so well. And he did well in that regard, especially with Jeremy McGovern out. It's more and more imperative that he does that. Because of that, it meant West Coast couldn't match up against both Mitch Lewis and Roost. And also importantly, Hawthorne weren't just kicking to Roost. He was really involved on the ground. And the fact the Hawks were able to move more and more away from the areas in which Barras was prominent meant that they were able to generate scores a lot more easily. Combine an absolute breakout performance from Josh Ward, who was fittingly named the rising star for this round, an excellent mover with the ball in hand, setting up a couple good scores, and you can understand why Hawthorne can be such a high-scoring team. It's hard for any team, even with a team that has such an established defensive structure with some newer blood in there like Brady Hoff and Rhett Bazo, as the Eagles do, to stop them. Additionally, hats off to Finn McGinnis, who in just his 14th game, outdid Tim Kelly, who had been one of the biggest lifters for West Coast in recent times. We talked so downward about Kelly at the start of the season, especially me. Since their break, he'd been an important part of their improvements, but McGinnis had a strong tag on him for the entire game, outgained him, had better possession, was involved offensively as well. Really impressive from another one of the Hawks youngsters. It's great to have those performances from those newer guys happening as you're developing a new system because the players and the coaching system alike will grow in tandem with each other. Three main things I noticed from this game. One, Jake Waterman did a nice job getting involved all over offensively. Really liked how he played a little bit like that Tim Embry role, even if he's a little bit on the smaller side. You know, he's going to find a way to do good things offensively, whether it's in the goal square, at the edge of the 50. There's something to build off. The fact that he's had to fight for time so much heading into this season has probably stunted his development, but he's very close to getting into that next level of performers. He's had at least one goal each game since the bye, and he's had three multi-goal performances out of those five games. He had two against Geelong, two against Carlton, and three in this one. Second, it's really hard to shut down both Luke Bruce and Mitch Lewis. You can see why the Hawks have done well against lower-tier teams, because lower-tier teams don't have the tools to do that. And third, it was awesome to see Ben Big Boy McAvoy get a goal. That was one of the best parts of this game. With Nick Natanui out, McAvoy, along with some help from Ned Reeves, dominated the hitouts in this one. It was 62-24, to and a lot of those were definitely to the Hawks' advantage as well. A lot of good individual statistical performances for Hawthorne. Josh Ward, your rising star nominee for round 18, finished with 34 disposals and gained 618 meters. Game highs in both of those categories. Tom Mitchell, 33 disposals. Jai Newcomb, 28 disposals. Dylan Moore, a goal, 25 disposals, seven marks and six tackles. I like that he was able to get involved outside of just scoring goals in the first half because a lot of games, that's really all he's done. 24 disposals for Chang Quath Jaff. 24 disposals for James Sicily. He also had 12 intercepts, six marks, and gained 542 meters and only seemed to get involved in one little scrap, which is well below his average. Jack Scrimshaw, a goal, 23 disposals, 10 marks, and eight intercepts. Good Scrimshaw. Finn McGinnis, two behinds, 21 disposals, 12 score involvements, and six marks. And the star of the show, Luke Bruce, six goals, two behinds, 11 score involvements. I'm not sure how much I could call this a frustrating game for the Eagles because of how much they stayed in it, even when they had a lesser volume of chances. But at the same time, you're wanting to see 
more development. You're wanting to see the younger players get more integrated. And this was another game where, by and large, it was the more senior performers that had the bigger stat halls and the bigger impact as a whole. Tom Barras has passed 100 games, and I guess you'd have to put him on the younger side of the performers in this one. A personal best and co-team leading 30 disposals with 18 marks and 11 intercepts. A lockdown guy back there for sure, but there's only so much a last line of defense could do. And the Hawks did better as the game went on, staying away from him. Andrew Gaff was the other with 30 disposals. Shannon Hearn with 28 and 9 marks. Alex Weatherden is on the younger side, hasn't gotten as many opportunities as of late. Had 23 disposals, 8 marks and 6 tackles. Captain Luke Shuey with 17 disposals and an octopus. Jack Redden with 9 tackles and Jamie Cripps with 8. It was unfortunate that Jamie missed last week when he could have matched up against his cousin. And it's clear that he's a player that is really able to elevate the Eagles just with the presence that he has. Very smart about knowing where to go on the field and what players to prioritize when he's looking to dispose of the ball. I had my eyes on the Hawks and Eagles game as we were coming back from our first night at the World Championships at eating at a really cool Japanese spot that one of my friends had told me about. I have a decent amount of friends that went to the University of Oregon, so that definitely helped with restaurant recommendations. But I was sad that the Eagles were playing at the time they did because it meant that I wasn't the one that was able to really be able to take in and analyze the Alice Springs game in all its glory. Again, we were able to catch it on TV once we got back to our Airbnb, but the Red Center game was yours for the taking, Ethan. Yes, it was. I got to say, it got off to a weird start. Very slow, surprisingly poor start for the Demons, who you would have thought would have come out with a lot of fire, considering this is a big occasion for them. Also, Neil Danaher in attendance. That was awesome. This game eventually evolved after a very slow start for the Ds to the Kaiseya Pickett show. He kicked six goals. First time anyone in a VFL or AFL game played in the Northern Territories kicked six, whether that's in Alice Springs or Darwin. And it's amazing just how much life he injects into the Demons at any given moment. Even against Geelong, where they didn't play that well, the moment he scored a goal, it just re-energizes the entire team like a cartoon character, like, you know, Popeye when he eats the spinach or something like that. The other takeaways I got from this game was that Melbourne has mixed things up a bit lately in a really good way, because for the first half of the season, they had been playing that same way, and it had been working, but when teams adjusted, they needed to adapt back, and they did a good job of it in this game. Alex Neal Boland got involved in the forward half, not just inside 50, but really all over the forward half. They let Ben Brown play some along the wing and show off his marking abilities there instead of just camping out in the forward 50. And they took advantage of some bad Port Adelaide turnovers, especially by Riley Bonner, who was pretty sloppy with the ball. Even so, it's not like the power necessarily played a bad game. They held that early 19-4 to lead. Then after trailing by four at halftime, Travis Boak actually kicked a 59-meter barrel at the halftime siren, but it went for just a behind. Then in the third, Connor Rosie kind of ducked his way into a high tackle call. But at least he made good on it with an absolute bomb from 50 to put the power back ahead. And if you're a believer that ball don't lie, then the call was right. They got the next goal as well after Willem Drew did a good job fighting off Christian Salem and finding Miles Bergman, who put the power up by nine. But the D's got the next three goals. Pickett soccering one in off the deck. Then he started a long run and got tackled high by Tom Jonas. 
Alex Neal Bolin started a good run through midfield that led to Charlie Spargo chipping to Ben Brown. Brown could have had three goals in the space of a couple minutes, but ended up with just a golden two behind out of it. Did finish with two goals for the game. The D's stretched their lead all the way to 31 with eight minutes left after Pickett went around the left for his sixth goal. And at that point, normally, there's no chance of a comeback, and it's just the broadcasters trying to keep the viewers tuned in. But there was actually a real shot at a comeback for a few moments in this game. I got to give Port Adelaide credit for making something out of this one. It looked like they were done. Travis Boak scored one, then set Todd Marshall up right at the goal line. They then had a really good quick sequence of kick, mark, kick, mark that ended up with a Willem Drew goal. At that point, they had had 10 straight inside 50s, had scored two goals in 48 seconds of clock time and trailed by just 13, but intercept marks by Angus Brayshaw and James Jordan put the game away. Not to mention Todd Marshall looked like he was nursing a late injury to either his hip or quad. I'm sure we'll know more about that by the time we drop our round 19 preview. And the Demons, sure enough, took care of business. And while it wasn't their best performance outside of Pickett and a good game from Christian Petraka, I was impressed by the way they were able to overcome Clayton Oliver's absence and the way they were able to utilize some of their pieces in different spots. Because that's something they weren't really doing before. You know, they had seemed so rigid. By the way, I don't know if I ever gave the scoreline, but it was Melbourne 12-11-83 to Port Adelaide 10-9-69. Nice. Yeah, the biggest takeaway I had for this one was a bit of the depth and flexibility that Melbourne had because it wasn't just Oliver that was out. You had Harrison Petty in COVID protocols and Jake Bowie was omitted for the first time, something I certainly didn't expect even though he had been as prominent a figure as of late. But Jake Belksham playing his first game since injuring his hand in the Entrecote brawl with Stephen May, I bet you forgot about that, did very well for himself down back and was another one of those who was willing to change his position and push forward at times. Hey, if he plays like that, they would win the grand final. And the fact that they were willing to move those pieces around, you know, not completely Richmond level, but being willing to break out of that, this is our structure mentality, bodes well for when they're going to need to make more in-game adjustments against the Fremantles, against the Sydney Swans, if they show up along their path again. Teams that go against the grain of what a lot of other sides do. And with Ben Brown being one of the first players that both of us came to know, because, I mean, how could you not notice him? right away between his hair, the long built for the theme from Chariots of Fire run-ups that he takes for set shots, was especially intrigued by the new role that he played and how well he took to it. He really struggled at times being close to goal, had been omitted a couple times because of it. He's able to add this dimension to his game, you know, not supplant Ed Langdon or James Harms on the wing. You don't expect that at all, but be willing to play more on those sides of the ground. It's another great asset within his game and within the team's greater scheme in terms of movement. Christian Petraka, 30 disposals, 10 clearances, 9 score involvements. Another big game for Jack Viney, 28 disposals, including a couple of really fancy party tricks. Ed Langdon, 24 disposals, 8 marks, 499 meters. So yes, he and Brown were both able to play along the wings without getting in each other's way. James Jordan, 19 disposals and 6 marks. Tom Sparrow, 18 disposals, 6 marks and 6 tackles. Adam Tomlinson, 9 intercepts. Christian Salem, 8 intercepts. And of course, Kazi Pickett, 6 goals in the behind. Tremendous performance and especially cool for an indigenous player to do that in the Northern Territory. 
pretty special on a lot of different levels. And remember, Cosley's uncle Byron played for both teams involved in that game, which probably makes it even more special for him. And yes, I get that he grew up in the West, played for Claremont and the Waffle, but it's also great to see that Indigenous successes in the AFL and at-large are celebrated by the greater Indigenous community. Also wanted to talk about Adam Tomlinson for a bit. He had had some rotten luck last year with an ACL injury back in May and had struggled to make his way back into the side. He had underperformed when he had gotten the chance, had been exposed big time against Sam Reed in the Swans game, got another chance here, and more than showed his worth. For Port, the biggest stats, Connor Rosie with a goal and 33 disposals. Another game for him at the focal point of their movement from the middle into the forward 50. Travis Boak kicked 2-1 with 29 disposals, 6 marks, gained 550 meters. Dan Houston, 28 disposals at 11 marks coming from halfback. Carl Amon, trade rumors swirling around him, better than he'd been as of late, with 25 disposals, 8 marks, and 501 meters gained. In the back, it was Darcy Byrne-Jones with 24 disposals at 10 marks, and Ryan Burton as a big mover along with Houston. 20 disposals, 694 meters gained. Port were plus 13 in clearances, which I was able to gather somewhat that they were doing better on that front. Went against the grain in terms of hitouts, which were 32-17 to to Melbourne, which wasn't a surprise because, again, Port don't have a true ruck in there. But I'm surprised that the power weren't able to translate those better clearance numbers into more points. And it shows the value of the structure and the defenders that Melbourne have. Final game of the round had no shortage of intrigue with how well Essendon had been playing lately. The Suns' thrilling win last week against Richmond, which feels like it was a lot longer ago. And maybe one of the reasons it feels like it was so long ago was because the Suns were pretty shitty on this Sunday evening. Essendon beat Gold Coast 14-19-103 to 8-7-55. That's the third straight win for the Bombers. And once again, it came with Kyle Langford in the lineup, but he was nowhere near as prominent this time. This was just a pretty complete performance by Essendon. They had an early 24-1 lead. Gold Coast then tied it a few minutes later. And after that, it was really all Bombers. I was still catching up on the Eagles-Hawks game when the start of this one rolled around between being in transit and, you know, wanting to savor the restaurant experience that we had was a really great spot that we were at. The first reaction I got out of this game at all from either of us was you, Ethan, just texting me, um, sons. And from that alone, I assumed that they had gotten off to a slow start and they certainly had. A couple turnovers helped spring the Bombers free, as well as some ruck wins from Sam Draper. It was really fun watching the battles between Draper and Jared Witts in this game. Draper definitely with more of an impact overall, as is to be expected from him. The four goals each way to start things was really interesting. and I didn't really know what to make of it then and still don't entirely know what to make of it now. Aside from the fact that multiple of them came off turnovers either way, and also that Redmond should have received a free kick against Ace Oya instead of Levi Casbolt managing to tie it for the Suns. The game had really opened up by that point, mid-first quarter, all sorts of running. Peter Wright was marking just about anything that was being kicked his way. And then you had the younger guys for Essendon stepping up throughout. Wright was, of course, prominent, but... Harry Jones kicked a goal. Ben Hobbs is very clearly not dead and willing to get into contests. He and David Swallow had a big collision. 
Hobbs may have done some damage to his left shoulder, but had that strapped and came back in. He had Sam Durham performing well, becoming a more complete winger by the game and maybe even by the quarter. Definitely learning well on the fly. Jones' goal was another 11-point turnaround where Essendon were able to capitalize off turnovers, which they did quite often in this one. There were a couple key ones from Jack Lukosius, one on either side of halftime that helped Essendon really establish control if they didn't have it otherwise. Once Jake Stringer got involved mid-second quarter, getting a handball from Jai Caldwell before finishing around the corner to put the Bombers up 20, I really had the idea that this was going to be Essendon's day once again. And then Stringer also faked out Jack Lukosius on one of those turnovers and caused him to run too far out of the goal square. There have been just one other time this year, I think, that someone had managed to fake someone out like that. And I think it was Mitch Lewis that managed it for Hawthorne, and he converted on a goal on the back of that. Stringer did for Essendon as well. That stretched the lead out to 29, close to halftime. They ended up adding it behind, so it was 30 at the half, 64 to 34. And Essendon maintained control from there. Bombers kicked the only two goals of the third quarter, one of them for Stringer once again. And the other, Harry Jones, who managed to step through a Charlie Ballard tackle and then round Oleg Markov as well. He was bringing the highlights as well as the points. And that was the case for a lot of Essendon in this one. It was three goals each in the last quarter, with a big highlight being that Sam Draper goal that you mentioned earlier. He started by grabbing the ball out of the ruck, a give-and-go from Guelphie. He rushed off Charlie Ballard as well. Ballard really ended up on the highlight reel for the wrong reasons as this one after having that huge smother last week against Jason Castagna. And yeah, it was just a complete game for Essendon. Hats off to their back six, especially, which had been such a problem area in the first part of the season, really until these past few games. The fullbacks especially hadn't been up to the task, but they were doing very well as interceptors. All of Jordan Ridley, Jaden Laverty, and Brandon Zirk Thatcher, who kept his pants on once again. And then each of the halfbacks, Mason Redman, Andrew McGrath, and Nick Hyde, had all been good movers before, but they hadn't all been able to put it together playing as a trio in that back line, partially because McGrath had been playing in the center line and had also been injured and also because Redmond was in COVID protocols last week. Didn't appear to be slowed down at all, though. And all those defenders support each other as well. They had their one-on-one contests, but they managed to kind of bunch those contests together at times that they never left any one of their teammates out to dry. You know, it's pretty clear with their current roster that Essendon are going to have their defenders move the ball forward, try to generate downhill momentum from that. But if you can force a turnover... You're going to have numbers going back the other way, and the Suns weren't able to do that. Now, some of that could have stemmed from just how badly injured they are defensively, but I would have thought their midfield would have been able to create more problems there. And one of those games where you can question Stuart Dew's tactics a bit. It's not like Essendon broke out a new game plan all of a sudden. I think they did what the Suns expected. The Suns just didn't counter it very well. And it was the Suns who were much sloppier with the ball themselves. 74 turnovers committed compared to Essendon's 52, and that definitely showed. And when Essendon got forward, they were much more efficient as well. 61.7% efficiency inside 50, while the Suns were at one-third, 33.3. And a bunch of teams have been in the mid to high 40s, but getting down into the 30s is a letdown, even when you end up kicking more goals than behinds off it. It means that 
even if your score might be respectable, you aren't making the most of the entries that you've gotten yourself. This was definitely a down game for Isaac Rankin. Maybe he was slow coming back from COVID protocols. You can chalk up some of Essendon's success inside 50 to those Gold Coast defensive absences, but again, the Sun struggling offensively, uh, really struggling anywhere outside of their own 50, doesn't make as much sense. And I remain surprised that after those four goals in a row, they couldn't get that same traffic again. There wasn't much in this game in terms of adjustments, so you think that the teams would be able to go back and forth more, but Essendon just outworked them. A lot of good statistical performances for Essendon in this one. Surprised I hadn't talked about Zach Merritt because he quietly does his job in the center of the ground really well, had some smart kicks both in and out of the center that led to goals. Can definitely explain why in his 36 disposal day, he had 14 score involvements. Had it behind himself, but he's never been a huge goal kicker. 11 intercepts is part of that as well. Big part of generating the turnovers. Eight marks gained 444 meters. Going forward from there, you had Matt Guelphy with 14 disposals and an octopus. Dylan Shield, 29 disposals, eight score involvements, seven clearances, 452 meters. In terms of the goal kickers, Nick Martin kicked 2-1 on 25 disposals. Sam Draper, I'm surprised at how complete of a ruck forward he is already. 2-1 on 13 touches. Jake Stringer with four goals to lead the way. 16 disposals and 10 score involvements for him. But then looking further back again at that halfback line, because this is a game where everything fit together for them. Andrew McGrath with 29 disposals, 11 marks, 8 score involvements, and 7 intercepts. Mason Redmond, a behind as he pushed forward once, 34 disposals, 10 marks, 9 score involvements, 643 meters. And Nick Hyde was the biggest ground gainer, 662 meters, a behind for him as well, 26 disposals, and 10 intercepts. A team win with the defensive unit performing that well is something that I've been waiting for press and did for a lot of this season, and they've done it a couple weeks in a row now. You forgot the most important Essendon stat. One happy Ugandan song. You know, this is where you would hope the Bombers would be at this point in the season. I mean, you'd like them to look a little bit better than 6-11, and 11, but for them to be at this stage right now where they're playing well against good teams. They're finding an identity. Guys are getting into their roles. I don't know if they're necessarily a finals team next year, but I think they'll be middle of the pack at worst. I think this was the sophomore slump. It hit really hard early in the season. They still have some things to figure out in terms of actual defending, though they did well in this game. Obviously, big picture. That's still something that needs to be improved. And remember, they've been linked to a lot of big trade targets and free agents. So. It'll be a fun offseason to watch for them because they could really make a charge next year or at least be, you know, a year away from making that charge. I like their prospects overall big picture. I like Ben Rutten and I love being right. And I think I kind of called some of what's been going on with Essendon. I didn't expect it to come in such dramatic swings, such a poor start to the season and such a great show lately. But I like where they are right now. As for the Suns, who obviously had a pretty crappy game, mentioned both Rankin and Lacocious really struggled. On the more positive side, Tuke Miller kicked it behind to go with 28 disposals, 8 clearances, 7 tackles, 619 meters gained. Noah Anderson, no after the siren goal this time, but 24 disposals, 7 clearances, 538 meters gained. And Brandon Ellis, 21 disposals, 7 marks. 
No reason that the Suns shouldn't make noise like the Bombers next year. Gold Coast may be a bit further along than Essendonard based on the more immediate returns they've had. And they've gone through some pretty severe slumps early on in the season as well. At the same time, though, I've got a strong feeling that a lot of people, including both of us, were looking through rose-colored glasses when it came to the Suns because of the nature of last week's win. They've lost close games the prior two weeks, but this was very nearly their fourth loss in a row. And I'm not sure if they're a team that just knows how to win yet. Knowing how to win is one of the last parts of a rebuild. They talked about this on First Crack last night, which was a pretty informative watch. That said, I'm just, you know, that refers more to what you got to do in close games, not in a game like this where you hardly showed up at all. I was very disappointed that they didn't, at the very least, really give the Bombers a game, considering how important this one was. It is nice to remember, no, they're not totally done yet. Finals are still an outside shot. Yes, they sit in 12th, but they're only four points back. Though it's going to be tough for them to make up the percentage if they end up in a tie for that eighth spot on points. They've done themselves no favors this week. They're going to have to steal a game either against Geelong or this coming week in the Q Clash. But it's not over. Richmond really threw them a bone by losing to North. And as we wrap things up this week, I do just want to mention, this was pointed out on Bounce last night as well. In 2012, Richmond lost after the siren to Gold Coast by two, and the next week lost to North by four. Happened again. Illuminati. Only difference is this time it happened in rounds 17 and 18 instead of in rounds 16 and 17. Somewhere, Carmichael Hunt is smiling. And when it came to knowing how to win, I was referring to a couple of those games that they squandered late. This was definitely a clunker for the Suns, and I'm hoping that it's just that, and that it's an aberration from the form that they had. They're able to... Get right back into the thick of things, though. My hopes are not high for the Q Clash because it's Q Clash. And ever since winning the first one, it's been a bit of a horror story for them. We're going to wrap things up, as we always do, by looking at the mark of the week and goal of the week. But I want to preface this by saying there were at least four goal of the week contenders, maybe six. Meanwhile, there were no good marks this week. The mark of the week that they chose on bounce was one from the VFL because the AFL ones were so unremarkable. No pun intended there. Last round, your mark of the week winner was Tom Duday over Connor McDonald. We both thought it probably should have gone to Cam Zerhar, but Zerhar made up for it with a six-goal performance this week. This week's nominees, you had one from the opening game of the round with Max King leaping through three Bulldogs defenders. And then he had two from the West Coast Eagles in their loss to Hawthorne. You had Tom Barras racing back and crashing into both Will Day and his own teammate, Harry Edwards, as he took somewhat of an American football-like mark. And then Jake Waterman bobbling and securing while falling to the ground in a six-man 3v3 pack. I'm going to give the edge to Barras here, and I expect that the voting public will as well, because I think the contact on that one, the going back with the flight like that is something that is given some sort of value when you don't have any sort of big spectacular leap. And heck, marks like that where you're going with the flight have won a couple marks of the year back in 2020. That's how Sam Walsh won his, although this one will not come anywhere near close. I'm also going with Barass King. He got his because he's tall. Waterman, whatever. None of these three would crack the conversation in a normal week, but there were more than enough good goals to make up for it. Jack Sinclair, 
one round 17 for deking both Bailey Banfield and Caleb Sarong, though I thought Lincoln McCarthy or Cam Guthrie should have won it. Probably Guthrie. I really thought McCarthy because he fully made that play himself. That said, there's going to be a good debate over this week because all three are good, two of which really stand out. Jeremy Cameron picking up that bounce in the right pocket, deking Lewis Young and then kicking with his left from an insane angle. That's probably the goal that drew like the most immediate holy shit reaction out of me out of any this season. Then you have Sam Draper winning a center bounce, setting up a give and go off a handball with Matt Wealthy, fighting off Charlie Ballard with one hand and then scoring. And you have Kaiseya Pickett with the first of his six goals. He received a handball in the right pocket, sold candy on Tom Jonas and kicked with his left. Benjamin, who do you have as the winner? I've gone back and forth between the first two of those nominees for a while. And I think it's going to be close between those in particular. And because Sam Draper had the longer distance for the play, and because he's not the guy that you'd expect to have a goal like that, I'm going to go with him. Though Jessam makes an awfully convincing case, and I know you're going with Jeremy Cameron's goal. I just think the fact that Draper started the play, grabbing it out of the ruck, and then dominating it from there makes it one of my favorite plays of the season. And to me, that's what gives him the edge over Cameron. I'm going Cameron because the angle of the kick was way harder. Draper's actual kick was pretty unspectacular. Cameron's kick itself was awesome. So I'm going Cameron, but both were really good. This is a question of which do you value more? Do you value the finish or do you value the Swedish? No, really. Do you value the entire play? No offense to the Norwegians, the Danes, everyone else in that area of Europe. The Estonians? The Estonians, of course. You know, Estonian is actually the closest language to Finnish. You took that whole thing in a completely different direction than I was going to. I was going to say something about foreplay. Okay, then. Anyway, that's all for the round 18 recap. We'll see you again to preview round 19 in just a couple of days. Thanks a lot for joining us as always. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe on Instagram at CatNameGrian. You can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. And you can find both of our footy thoughts together at AmericansFooty on Twitter. Just to show which one of us is speaking, we do initial our posts with an E if it's Ethan or a B if it's me. And don't forget, you can always support this podcast through Anchor. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We hope to see you again soon or hear from you again soon. Or we hope you hear us again soon. Or we hope to read your tweets soon. I don't know. It's always awkward to end these. I'll just cut you off now or cut myself off. Bye.